0: Father, thanks for giving us tonight. Again, thank you for giving us uh, the opportunity to study and think about your Word and uh, how to apply it to our lives, and we pray that you'd give us clarity tonight as we uh, think about these things and consider how to put them into practice in our own Bible readings and um, study of your Word. We we pray that uh, ultimately we don't just fall into a system of Of study, but we we pursue you uh, with the desire to be transformed by you and changed uh, through your word and by your spirit. And we pray for your help in that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, let me do a quick recap. So this is the third of three weeks here. We're finishing up. This whole thing has been about how to understand and apply the Bible. So the first two weeks, we basically have just talked about how to understand it, uh, what kind of questions we should ask about it and how to grow in a, in a deeper understanding of it. So the first week we started with just the fundamental question of what is the Bible. And uh, I, I just don't think we can understand the Bible if we don't know what it is and, and understand what we're coming to as we open it up and read it. So we said, just again, just to recap what we talked about, that the Bible is the God-inspired, authoritative, true story of God's mission to save sinful people for his own glory through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is the the whole thing. The story is, a uh, the Bible is a collection of writings and stories and histories and letters and all kinds of different things, different forms of literature. But they all uh, work together to tell one big story about Jesus Christ coming into the world to save us for the glory of God. So that's what we uh, need to recognize it is, if we're going to understand the Bible, we've got to approach it as it actually is, uh, which is that overarching message of God's salvation through Christ. And then last week, we talked about how to read the Bible in a Christ-centered way, um, that, that the Bible is all about Jesus, that, that, is, um, that, that that's the whole point. He's the center of it. And so we have to read it in a way that is centered on him. And we basically talked about how to do that through asking two foundational questions. Uh, What does this Bible teach me about God? And then within that, there was a few other sub-questions to ask, like what does it say about his character, what does it say about his conduct, and what does it say about his concerns? And then uh, what is the second big question to ask is what does this passage teach me about people? Uh, What does it teach about people as image bearers of God? What does it teach about People as sinful people. Uh, And so those are kind of the two main things that we talked through last week as we as we talked about approaching the Bible in a way that gets us to Jesus. Um, So today, as we wrap all this up, I want to move into the application of the Bible. How do we go from understanding what it's saying by asking these questions and approaching it through the right angles to actually applying what it says to our lives? And so that's what I want to unpack tonight. And it, this probably won't take quite as long as the last two weeks. I'm, I'm hoping it'll be a little quicker because the snow is coming and a lot of us have drives home and that kind of thing. We'll see how it goes. But, um, but basically, as we approach the Bible in a way of application, I think what we should do is understand the distinction between law and gospel, uh, these two, these two words, law and gospel, uh, I think are helpful categories to get us to understand how the Bible applies. And so what do I mean by these two words? Well, law could obviously mean a lot of things in, a, in different contexts, right? It could mean the Old Testament. Sometimes just the Old Testament in general is called the law. And that's not what I mean by law. Um, what I mean by law is a way of talking about our fallen condition, or our sinful and inability, sinful nature and inability to obey what God commands. Uh, the law is another way of saying that we can't live up to what God has called us to in, in our own sinful conditions, our fallen condition. And so that, that's what I mean by law. I'm not referring to it more in a nuanced way of um, you know, particular parts of the Bible or The Old Testament or whatever. um, I'm really just using it to kind of categorize, catch a kind of a catch-all term for our fallen condition. Because fundamentally, the law, um, as Paul, the Apostle Paul, understands it in Romans and Galatians, is that we use the law or we see the law through the lens of our sinfulness, and we recognize that the law shows us God's good, perfect intention and will, but we see ourselves within that as fallen. People that can't actually live up to the law. Paul's whole message of, of Romans and Galatians, and you could argue all of it, but he he makes the point that if we could be saved by our law keeping, if we had the ability to keep the law, we wouldn't need a savior. And so the reason that we need a savior is because we can't obey the law. So so this is this law gospel language kind of comes out of uh, Luther and and uh, some of his his writings, um, but I think it's a really helpful. Even though we're, I'm not a Lutheran, uh, I I do love Luther and I like this distinction because I think it's a helpful one. Uh, so law is our is another way of talking about our fallen sinful condition, and then gospel really refers to again gospel is a is a big term that we can define more uh, in different ways, but. When, I, when I'm talking about gospel in this context, I'm referring to the solution to our sin and to the fallen uh, nature that we have and the inability that we have to honor God. Uh, and that solution only comes through the finished work of Christ. It doesn't come through our own efforts or our own ability to change ourselves, uh, but through Jesus. And so, so those, those two categories, I think, are really helpful for us as we start to think about how to apply the Bible we can ask something very foundational when we approach a text. What does this show me about law and what does this show me about gospel? Or what does this show me about my fallen condition and what does this show me about the gospel solution? And so that's that's where we're going to start uh, tonight. We'll talk about our fallen condition first and just unpack what this means a little more. Um, so we live in a fallen world. Uh, the The fall refers to, that word refers to what happened in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, took, took matters into their own hands, ate the fruit they were commanded not to eat. Uh, the theologians say they, they fell from the state of uh, perfection in a sense that they had with God, and they brought the whole world down with them. And so we we can see that we live in a fallen world. We turn on the news, and it's it's everywhere, right? We okay. we see it actively in the world. Uh, we see it through terrorism or natural disasters or corruption or school shootings or all the things that we're confronted with all the time. And um, we see that same kind of evil, although in different forms, closer to home too. It's not just the big, bad, scary world out there. It's It gets closer to us and Happens in, in in coworkers bending rules, but then getting promotions, and this the unfairness of that, or your neighbors flaunting immoral lifestyles, or a close friend betraying you, um, a loved one being diagnosed with cancer, uh, any of these things, and many many more. Right, we can't possibly talk about every every way that the world's fallen. Um, we know it, and those are just some examples of it. Um, we also see, oh boy, what was that? That was like a raccoon or something. Holy cow. It's big. Wow. I used to say we live in a zoo in this building and it's been a while, but okay. Well, there we go. Um, so ignore the raccoon above your heads. Uh, uh, okay. So uh, we see the fallen world, right? But we also see evil and suffering. It's not just limited to what's outside of us. It's also limited. It also it comes into us ourselves. It is in our immediate lives, it's in our own uh, situations, our own relationships. We know we um, are not only sinned against, but we sin against others and against God ultimately, right? So we see this in our own lives too. Sinful desires tug at our hearts, our minds. We're Lord to disobey God. Sinful words come out of our mouths and hurt others. Sinful actions come naturally to us. All of this speaks to the fact that we live in a fallen world and we have fallen um souls outside of christ so all those specific examples are obviously different from person to person everyone struggles with different things um we're not all identically sinning in the same ways but we're all sinners and those few examples are just examples um But here you have a number of passages that just give us the universal nature of sin for all people. One is Jeremiah 17, verse 9, which says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, That's Adam. And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So there you're seeing this universal reality of sin and brokenness and fallenness in the world. But when God's word goes to work in our lives, um, it penetrates to the core of our, our being. It reveals our thoughts, our intentions, our motives, our desires, our inclinations, in other words, it, it exposes our sinful fallen condition. The Bible is God's tool to do that. Uh, the Bible is what God has given us to see the fact that we are sinners. Uh, Paul talks about this in, in Romans. I, I don't have the exact reference off the top of my head now, but he talks about how if we if we didn't have the law, we, we, would, we wouldn't have this conviction of sin, right? But we have the law and we can see our lives up against it and, the Bible is God's tool to do that. And Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 talks about how the word is living and active and it's sharp and it cuts through our lives and into our hearts to get to, um, where we need to be. So the Bible gets us there. Um, so let's, let's define the fallen condition a little more. Um, a guy named Brian Chapel, who's a pastor in I think the St. Louis area, maybe uh, he's written some books and, um, he he offers this definition i it's a little complicated to read it but i but i think it'll make sense uh the fallen condition focus so he's talking about as we read the bible what we're focusing on is the mutual human condition that contemporary believers share with those to whom the text was written that requires the grace of the passage for god's people to glorify and enjoy him okay so what he's saying there is that the the fallen condition focus, as we focus on our Bibles with the fallen condition in mind, we're seeing the mutual human condition. So the, the people in the Bible who lived thousands of years before us were also fallen people, and they dealt with things that we deal with too. They lived in a fallen world, and we live in a fallen world. They experienced the same kinds of temptations and struggles and hardships that we face today, even though they lived... So long before us and in different contexts, and spoke different languages, and lived in a world that would be totally unfamiliar to us, um, they are still, nonetheless, dealing with the fundamental same issues of sin and brokenness. And so, when the Bible draws these stories out and shows us the things that these, these men and women deal with, we can find ourselves in that story as well. So how do we go about identifying that? Um, so in some passages, it's going to be right on the surface. There's going to be some passages you read, and many of them, where the, the fallen issue is just right there for you to, to behold. Right? It's just going to be obvious. In other passages, maybe not so much. Um, so, so here's some questions that can help us as we read the Bible to look for that fallen condition. Uh, first, the first question we can ask is what sinful tendencies, habits, thoughts, patterns of behavior, feelings, desires, or beliefs—lots of things there. Okay, but what what things in this passage, like this, are explicitly stated in the text or reasonably implied by the text? Okay, so what what sinful things, habits? thoughts, patterns, desires, whatever, those kind of categories, what's in the text that shows us that? That can either be implied or it's explicitly stated. Uh, so Psalm 71.5 will be a good example because this is, a, this is one example that's harder to see on the, on the surface. It's not, an, it's not an obvious thing. Psalm 75.1 says, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous Deeds. Okay, so this verse does not explicitly state a fallen condition. In fact, it actually expresses the opposite. Right? It's, so that's why it's hard when you sometimes you take a passage like that and you go, "Well, where's the fallen condition in that?" That's like saying the the opposite. But if we actually think about it, and that's why, that's where so much of this comes in, is like we need to give time to deep and just just some real reflection, meditation, thought. Um, not just try to buzz through Bible reading in five minutes to check it off a list because we, we need to do it, uh, but to actually dwell on it and think about it. If we pause to, to reflect on this, um, we will we realize that um, we don't always give thanks like we should. Like that verse, let's go back to it. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. Well, can can we reasonably read that verse and go, yeah, that's true of me all the time? Of course not. We're sinners. We don't always give thanks to God. We don't always give thanks. And, and so we don't always recount his wondrous deeds. So the things that that verse is saying should be the things that we're drawn to or, or, or moving towards as sanctifying people. But we're not always there. So the fallen condition that emerges from a verse like this is that we fail to give thanks to God and uh, we forget that he is near us. Another condition that might be drawn out is that ingratitude grows in us when we fail to remember and talk about what God has done for us. So again, it's, it's not always reading the text and going, Okay, well, so therefore, I'm 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 per, the perfect shining example of this passage. Sometimes the passage is actually glaringly showing us, oh, that's not me. <laughs> like I'm not in that in that boat. At least not all the time. And so then we can start to see ourselves uh, in areas in which we need to confess sin, repent, turn turn back to Christ. And that's what the whole point of the fallen condition is meant to get us to is a place of recognizing our, our sinfulness. Another question we can ask to, to identify a fallen condition in a passage is what evidence of the effects of the fall is explicitly stated in the text or reasonably implied by it that needs the redemptive work of God. So what are the effects of the fall in this passage? What, what What does this passage tell me about the world that is a fallen world, a sinful world? What does it say about this world as I read this text? Um, This question helps us see that consequences of the fall are not necessarily the direct result of specific sin. Um, Instead, they're simply a result of living in a fallen world. Uh, So I've said this at times in sermons over the years that we... um, Sin is the reason that they're suffering, but not all suffering is the result of a specific sin and a lot of times we, we want to you know point to a lot of times and not maybe not us in this room, but people will like job's friends, as job suffered, what was their what was their conclusion? Well, you must have done something to deserve this. You, what, what's the problem here, Job? you did something, own up to it. and we know from the, that passage that, he, that, that book that he Hadn't this was God's will in his life, and and those those guys were 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 dumb, and they were offering terrible advice. Um, but here's a good example from the New Testament of, of this. Uh, it's from not, uh, John nine one to three. It says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sent this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's an interesting passage, and it's one of my favorites in John's gospel. As as that story plays out, it's just amazing. We we don't have time to look at the whole passage tonight, but just from those first three verses, we, we see Jesus makes it very clear that this man being born blind was not the result of his sin, or his parents sin. It wasn't a cause and effect. It wasn't um well they did something or he somehow before he was born did something. I don't know how the disciples were wrapping their heads around that idea, but they were trying to figure out whose sin caused this man's blindness. This man was born blind. This doesn't seem right. Someone must have done something. And Jesus says, "No, that's not the point. That's not what's happening." he actually says it, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So there's actually a purpose for the man's blindness, and it's not a result of sin directly. However, the reality of blindness itself is the result of living in a fallen world, right? People are born into this world with various disabilities, various illnesses. It's a reality of a fallen world, and... Uh, the fallen condition in this passage would simply be that we live in a world where people suffer. I think the the well, I'd be jumping ahead of myself to get to the to the uh, the conclusion that we get in that passage. I'll maybe try to bring it back around to that. But I think um, that passage clearly shows us both. Uh, it's a great example of both the fallen condition and the and the redemptive work of Christ uh in this world so i'll try to circle back to that if i remember to but let's keep going with this fallen condition thing here's another example another passage we can look at as an example acts 15 37 to 40 so to set the context up here sometime after the end of their uh first missionary journey together paul and barnabas decide to return to the cities where they had planted churches okay and so here's where the passage picks up here it says now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus but Paul chose Silas and departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Okay, so this is just recording an event that happened. It's a historical account of Paul and Barnabas and their, their split from, from ministry towards, with one another. And they, they split over a disagreement about a guy named John Mark. And uh, Barnabas thought John was ready to go again. And Paul was like, man, don't you remember he deserted us? And like, maybe we shouldn't trust this guy. And so they couldn't get along. They couldn't come to an agreement. There arose a sharp disagreement. And, and I, wish that the, I wish Luke would have expounded on this a little more because it's not real detailed. But there's this sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, and they decided they couldn't keep working together. So these two godly men could not agree. And... The passage, which is interesting, the passage does not settle the issue of who was right and who was wrong. It doesn't tell us. It doesn't give us a a definitive statement of Barnabas was wrong or Paul was wrong. Uh, So what it's doing is it's helping us see as we look at it through the lens of the fallen condition, is it showing us the consequences of living in a fallen world, which is conflict is inevitable and that. Conflict is even in between believers. Uh, believers are not immune from conflict with one another. And the fallen condition is the conflict is to be expected in a world that's still under the effects of the curse. We, we can learn something about the world we live in through reading these passages and looking at the fallen condition. A third question, this will be the last one on this, um, I think, uh, we should also, we, couldn't, we can also ask. I'm not saying we have to ask every one of these questions, by the way, but these questions are, are some of the questions we can ask. And that is, what, what God given human longings, though warped by sin, are explicitly stated in the text or implied by the text and the redemptive work of God? So, another way to identify fallen conditions is. Is there something in this text that would be a reasonable, God-given human longing that's then been warped by sinfulness? When God created us, he made us with certain longings and desire, and yet sin warps and twists those. And there's one clear example. I mean, there's many, but one is in Genesis 16:1 and 2. Uh, this is where uh, Sarai, who becomes Sarah, um, It says, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So Sarai's desire for a child was not the sinful problem here, right? Right? That's a part of how God made her, and it was a good desire. It's, an, it's, it's something that God has wired human beings for. Um, we also know from earlier in, in that story that God promised Abraham that he would, or Abram at the time, to, that he would make him a great nation. And so Sarai is obviously going to feel the 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 desperate need for children to fulfill this promise, but where sin gets twisted up into this is that the desire uh, basically leads her to a place of trusting in herself and taking matters into her own hands rather than trusting God to fulfill his promise as he, as he did. And so we know that the results were disastrous. Abr- Abram had a, had a child with Hagar, and that just led to all kinds of brokenness and disunity and... Um, Genesis, you know, as you continue to read that story, makes that clear, that this, this decision of Abram and Sarah's to, to have a child in this way, to try to fulfill the promise and the longing that they had in their own power, is actually uh, what, what led to so many disastrous things. So sin took a God-given desire and warped it in, in, in a fallen condition. So identifying the fallen condition uh, in a passage is is crucial for applying the Bible to our lives um, it's It's the first half it's the law and then we need the gospel right that's this is only half the process we need to get to the gospel we need to get to what the solution is if we are going to apply the Bible rightly if we only focus on law, then all we're focusing on is Uh, just our destruction and our sin and our judgment. And that's not the message of the Bible, ultimately. The message of the Bible is we are sinners who need a Savior, and thankfully, through Christ, we have one. So let's talk about the gospel solution. Um, What is the gospel solution? Well, it's the aspects of the gospel that are revealed in the text that provide the solution to the fallen condition. Let me unpack that. And define that a little further. Um, the gospel, that word, refers to what God has done for us uh, in and through Jesus Christ. So there's lots of aspects to what Jesus has done for us. Right? He's justified us, which means he's declared us not guilty of our sin. He's adopted us. He's made us part of his family. He's sanctified us. He's set us apart and put us on this journey. I'll add to this that puts us on a journey of being made like Christ. He's given us the Holy Spirit to live within us. And and these are just some of the aspects. Right? You can look at uh, Ephesians 1, uh, that, that whole chapter, that first chapter of Ephesians, Paul just lays out all of these blessings that we have in Christ and because of Christ. And just, if you ever want to do a deep dive on that, it's just amazing the ways in which Paul shows us what the gospel does for us. Um, and so, Just as every passage in the Bible has a fallen condition, because every person aside from Christ is sinful, um, so does every passage have a gospel solution. It has a gospel solution because the Bible is about Jesus. It gets us to Christ. And we talked a lot last week about this and how the whole Bible is, is pointing us to Christ. And sometimes that's through typology, sometimes that's through... Uh, some clear, direct references. Sometimes that's through the stories of Christ himself, right? But, but the, there's always a gospel solution. And sometimes that solution's right in the passage that we study itself. And sometimes uh, we have to look for it elsewhere. But here's an example of where it would be right in the text. Ephesians four thirty-two. 32. Uh, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, with this passage, the the obvious fallen condition in this is that we are often not very forgiving when people sin against us. We're not always prone to do that. We don't always want to do this. This is why the Bible calls us to be kind and tenderhearted and forgive, because that's not always our natural inclination. If it was, we wouldn't have to be told to do it. We're sinful, so we need to be instructed on how to live even the most basic things um, and so here you have this this fallen condition is we're not always loving we're not always kind we're not always tenderhearted, we're not always forgiving but um, the immediate call uh, after sorry after immediately calling believers to forgive Paul shows us what the gospel solution is which is we're forgiven in Jesus Christ, right? So we are to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. We have, we have the gospel solution. We don't want to forgive because we're sinners, but because Christ has forgiven us, so he empowers us to forgive out of that. So forgiven people will forgive people. Right? and that's kind of the this is the gospel doctrine gospel culture thing that we talk about at, at Springbrook all the time that that the way that the gospel is unpacked should lead to how we are formed by it but there's other cases where we we may have to supply gospel solutions from elsewhere in the bible it's not always going to be directly in the text we're studying uh, an example of this would be Genesis 4, 1 to 7. We're not going to read the whole passage, but this is the story of Adam and Eve's first two kids, Cain and Abel. Um, you're probably familiar with the story. Uh, Cain gets jealous of his brother Abel because God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. He ultimately goes and kills him, committing the first murder. And so um, after that happens, uh, God talks... Uh, speaks to, to Cain and tells him that, that sin is crouching at his door. Um, uh, that, excuse me, that was before, yeah, that was before the, the murder, I'm sorry. That was the, the prelude to that. Um, okay, so what we're learning from that passage, and you can read it, is basically sin is a hungry, predatory animal ready to devour us. But this passage doesn't show us how God solves the problem in and of itself. But other parts of Scripture do. Right, we we know, we have a whole Bible. Right? We have a whole Bible. Um, my wife was just at a conference where someone was speaking, and he said, um, and I'm not, I don't even know the guy's name, but he, he was re- preaching through Mark, and he said how Mark <coughs> um, doesn't mention the virgin birth, and which is true, and uh, so then so then he said, so that, I guess that means it's not a foundational doctrine, and it's like. Crystal's texting me, she's like, "This guy just said this because we have a whole Bible, sir. Like what are you talking about? We don't just have the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so so again, just it goes to show that um, people can misunderstand things, and uh, sometimes we think if it's not right there, then it's not central, but it's like, we got to look at the whole the whole thing. So we have Romans six five to eleven as one example of how um, the gospel solution answers the question of this, this predatory sin, sin that's hungry for us, right? Christ gives us the answer. It says in um, 5 through 11 of chapter 6, For if we have been united with him and Jesus in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, And so, and then it's said, I'll read verse 12. Let sin therefore not reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Um, so this passage shows us that because of Christ's death and resurrection and our union with him as believers, uh, we're no longer enslaved to sin. So sin may be this hungry predatory animal that wants to devour us, but it doesn't have the power to do so because Christ died to kill sin, and was raised uh, to conquer it once and for all. So we see that we've been set free, we're united to him, we've died with him, and we've been raised with him, and so we don't have sin and its power hanging over us. So the gospel solution gets us to see that though we are fallen, we have a Savior in Jesus Christ who uh, we are to believe in and confess our sins to and depend upon for life transformation. So as we as we start this process of application, we should be looking for those clues of where's the fallen condition, where's the gospel solution? And just start to try to unpack those things. Okay. Uh, real quickly, I've got um, and we're not gonna I do mean pretty quickly here. We've got we've got four more questions to uh to bring to your 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 mind as you think through how to apply the Bible, but I wanna answer this question. How do we apply the Bible to our whole lives? All right, That's what we want. That's what, as Christians, we want to see the Bible influence our whole lives. So I've got about four questions here, and, and we're not going to spend a ton of time on any of them, um, but I think they're helpful just to get your minds uh, moving in the right direction. So uh, the first question we could ask ourselves when applying the Bible is, what does God want me to think or understand from this passage. What does God want me to think or understand? Before we were born again, Satan blinded our minds. He he prevented us from seeing the beauty of Christ. But that changed when God made us spiritually alive, right? So as believers, we've been given the mind of Christ now. And we are, uh, even though we are now still tempted to think, the way we did before we knew Christ. We have, we have the, the tug and the pull back and forth, but um, we have minds that have now the capacity through the Spirit of God working in us to help us understand or to think rightly about God and ourselves. As we, we talked about last week, we asking those questions of, what does this say about God? What does this say about people? The only way we can answer those questions is to be able to have them the mind of Christ in us and, and to be able to understand what we need to understand. Um, so to be conformed to this world uh, means to think and believe and desire and act like people who don't know Christ. Right? So that's, that's the mind of someone who's not uh, in Christ. They, they, they just think like everybody else and they're molded and squeezed into different values and ideals. But the antidote to that is to be conformed and transformed uh, by the renewing of our minds, as um, as uh, Romans twelve one says. We should be transformed by the renewing of our minds, and God does this renewal by the Holy Spirit who lives within us. So when we go to apply a passage of Scripture, we want to be sure that we're asking um, what we need to understand about God and people how we relate to God, how we relate to people, right? In one sense, this is just a summary of of, uh, reflecting on some of those foundational questions that we've already talked about. But asking what God wants us to think or understand also reveals incorrect uh, ways of thinking that need to be brought in line with what the Bible says. And I, and I do say this a lot, too. I know I'm, I, I don't have that many tricks, you know. Um, uh, but one of the things that I talk about is that when, when we see um, something that's wrong or something that's not connected between us and the, and the scriptures or us and God, um, our, our natural inclination is to go, well, then the Bible's wrong. That's our natural inclination to go, well, that's, that's wrong, and I should just disregard that because I can't be wrong. But what the Bible shows us, and as grace comes into our lives, and as the Spirit works in us, we actually learn, no, no, I'm wrong. It's not wrong. It's me that's wrong. And so I get to, to be conformed again or re- reformed by God's grace through his word, by being confronted by that and going, he wants me to understand that I'm actually thinking wrongly about this, and I need to align my thoughts with his. So that's, that's the first question It's what does God want me to understand or think about through this passage? Question two uh, is, what does God want me to believe? So at first, this question might seem like another way of asking the first question. Uh, but I do think that there's a subtle difference here. Um, I think we can understand the, a, a truth at an intellectual level Without actually believing it to such a degree that it shapes how we live, um, basically, this is the distinction between acknowledging something as true on a cognitive level and and then actually putting your your yourself in a place where you have to trust in that knowledge. Uh, the, the, the example that I've heard so many people use over the years is the is the example of the chair, right? Like everybody knows a chair should hold them up when they sit on it. Uh, but until you sit on it, you're not really believing that chair will hold you up, right? You might go, I, I know that chair will hold me up. Uh, but if you're not sitting on it, you're, you're not really believing that chair will hold you up. And that's a silly example, obviously, but it's, it's just kind of getting to the, to the issue there. So the distinction between thinking and understanding and believing uh, actually does appear often in the New Testament, much of what these letters, um, or much of what is in these letters, is not brand new information, but rather reminders of what the readers already knew. Uh, Ephesians 2:11 through 22, Paul commands his readers to remember the whole series of truths he taught them before. His point is to call the Ephesians to believe the truth that they've already understood in such a way that it shapes how they live. Um, another example would be first Corinthians 15. I want to remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you. We, we need to have the the reminders because even though we we can easily go, I've heard this before. I know this. I've, I've heard it so many times. Yeah. Like maybe you have, but if it's not actually meaningfully being believed and therefore leading to life transformation, what, what's the use of it? A major reason that God gave us his word is to produce this faith or belief in us, right? According to Romans ten seventeen, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so asking what God wants us to believe gives us that opportunity to identify the false beliefs that motivate our sinful actions that put us in positions to confess uh, those false beliefs and move forward in believing what God says is true. Um, yeah, again, I think, I think the whole point of belief is to be conformed to what God's Word says and what it, what it means for our lives and not just intellectually understanding it, but putting it into practice, which means we actually do uh, confess our sins and confess the false ways that we believe when, when, the, when we're confronted with those and see them, and then we move forward in faith. Okay, third question um, is, what does God want me to desire? This question gets at what the 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards referred to as affections. He saw affections as the spring or the source or power of our actions. So our desires are central to our affections. So asking what God wants us to desire can reveal sinful desires, inclinations, feelings that the Holy Spirit needs to change. If we do not desire what God says we should desire, then we should confess that and pursue repentance. As God shows us what or who we should desire, we can pray for his Spirit to change us so that our desires, inclinations, and feelings line up with what Scripture says. Um, a A lot of our I'd say most of our sin, sinful problems boil down to what we want, what we desire uh, on the core level of our lives. And what the Bible does is it starts to shape and change us so that we start to desire and want what is good and right and lovely and, and Christ-like. And, and then we start to not want what we once wanted. And it's just an amazing thing. I, I I'm privileged and I'm I'm just so thankful to be able to know people who have um come out of addiction and are and are walking in sobriety and are living lives that um through the power of Jesus to to be changed people and it's just like when you talk to these these men or women who have come out of those uh, those backgrounds it's just uh, awesome to hear the stories of how God has changed literally changed their desires they just don't want what they want it anymore. What they used to long for so desperately, uh, what they used to steal or kill for even, what is no longer anything that they want because Jesus changed them. And, and ultimately, even though that's just, that's one category of how this works, it, it's this way for all of us on different levels and different angles uh, that our desires change, our affections change. So as we read the Bible, we can ask the question, what does this passage show me I should desire? And then see it and hold that up to your own life and see if that actually is where you're at. And if it's not, then there's room for confession. Okay, fourth and final question on this. Um, what does God want me to do? What does God want me to do? Now, a lot of us, um, and I'm I'm in this boat, like we're just gonna jump right to this most of the time. And uh, we gotta be careful with this one because There are many passages that God gives us direct commands and things that we ought to do. Uh, But we have to, again, categorize this properly through law and gospel. Uh, Doing the things that God calls us to do has to be motivated by the grace he gives us in Jesus. It's that his grace drives us to obedience, not our obedience somehow earns his grace. That's, That's where the things get all twisted up. Um, and so we can ask this question, and we need to ask this question. Otherwise, we're not actually being doers of the word. The Bible calls us to be doers of what His Word says. But um, uh, we we need to make sure we're not twisting this up into some kind of Pharisaical works righteousness thing too. So it, it can get a little sticky if we're not being careful there. Um, okay. So some passages in the Bible give us direct commands on what we should do as followers of Christ. Here's an example: Romans 12. Now. This is, this is important. Romans 12 is at the very end, practically. There's only, uh, how many chapters are in Romans? 16? 16. So we're at the tail end of the, of the book. The first 13 chapters, um, uh, excuse me, the first 11 chapters, I don't, I'm not a math guy, obviously. First 11 chapters of Romans are all, this is what the gospel is. This is your sin. This is how Christ saved you. This is the, this is the gospel. And then Paul begins to make application. He didn't put chapter 12 in the content of chapter one because it's, it's not where it belongs. So even that can teach us something. But Romans 12, 9 to 17, it's a long, ver- long section here, but it's just filled with things that we are to do. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. So coming up with a specific action from that passage uh, is not hard to do, right? What's hard to do is all the things we're supposed to do from that passage, right? That's what gets kind of kind of scary is how many of those things we're, we're not doing or, sh- or not doing well, right? And that's where we can feel guilt and shame and all those things. And again, we got to preach law and gospel, distinctions to ourselves in that, too. Um, but here is where it's especially important to remember that Scripture was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. So in that case, in Romans 12, I think that we can all say that that does apply pretty directly to us because we're in the same church category as we walk through those chapters of, of the Bible, right? Creation, crisis, covenants, Christ, church, consummation we're in church and that's that uh that passage in Romans would fall in that part part of the story so I think with that one yeah we can we can pretty directly draw a line to ourselves for the most part um but there are passages where that's not the case where it's written for us but it's not written to us so like Leviticus is a good example of this Leviticus 19 9-10 says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your fields right up to the edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyards bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So now this commandment in the Old Testament context of Israel was for the Israelites as they went to harvest their crops, right? God commanded them to leave some, uh, some food behind for the poor to go and be able to gather leftovers. Um, we see this practically play out in in the book of Ruth, as, as Ruth is a widowed woman, and she goes to the field of Boaz, and Boaz was being a, an obedient uh, farmer and is actually leaving sections of his field as he was commanded to uh, to be gleaned by the poor. But as we read this story today, uh, we need to keep in mind that we're not Israelites. uh, And more importantly, we're not under the Mosaic Covenant. And so it would be misguided for us to conclude that God wants us to leave behind some vegetables in our garden or something like that. That's not really the application that we need to come to. Um, You probably wouldn't want someone just traipsing on your land, picking from your garden, right? Like that's kind of not the context we're living in. Um, but we could conclude that God wants us to give and be generous towards local ministries that help meet the needs of the poor, right? There's, there are ways that this principle applies or can apply to our lives, but it's not a direct one-to-one, right? Because most of us are not farmers. Most of us don't have fields or vineyards. Uh, so, so again, we're not ancient Israelites. We're not under the law of Moses. There's all kinds of things there, but there is a principle, and, and that is that we should care for the needs of the poor and, and help meet those as we're able. Um, so asking what God wants us to do helps us recognize actions we should be taking, um, but we're not. But it also exposes actions that we should stop doing. Some actions that God brings to mind are occasional, and some are habitual. So pursuing repentance uh, for repeated and habitual sins uh, often requires help and encouragement from other believers, right? We, we are not called to walk the Christian life alone. We need we need one another to help us. And the, uh, the Apostle James says that we should confess our sins to one another so that we may be healed. There is healing that God does in us as we open up our hearts to, uh, and our sin and our brokenness to other believers. And uh, so that's one, again, another way we can apply that. But as we walk through habitual sin issues, we, we probably need help uh, from others to, to walk with us and to have someone we can safely confess those things to. Uh, when, we, when we identify areas of sin, we should always be sure to root the desire, new actions uh, in our transformed thoughts, belief, and desires. So uh, we need to root our, our new actions uh, in transformed, grace-filled thoughts and beliefs and desires. Um, all right. So last slide here. The goal of understanding the Bible and applying it to our lives is life transformation, right? We want to see God's spirit, use, God, use his word to make us more like Jesus. So uh, these four aspects of application, thinking, believing, desiring, and doing. Uh, as we approach the text, what, do, what what does God want me to think here? What does he want me to believe? What does he want me to desire? What does he want me to do? As we As we approach the text that way, after we do the work of understanding its original meaning and what it says about God and all those things too. That does put us in a position uh, to see God produce deep and life change, uh, lasting change rather in our lives. So uh, that's the goal. Like so, uh, applying the Bible is is not particularly challenging. It's really just kind of running through as you read it, um, and you don't have to do all four of these systematically this way necessarily. Some people are more system people and some people are, are more uh, organic type type people. But if you're starting to think deeply about the text, um, you're going to start to ask some of these these internal questions about your own life and where you're not lining up with the thoughts or beliefs or desires or actions that God has for you. So putting that into practice will we'll really... Uh, be a benefit to you and will help you grow in your in your Christian walk. So there's that. Um and we're at like basically just just about an hour here. That's what I was shooting for. So let me pray for us and uh, again um I'll be around for a little bit if you want to chat. Um but let me pray. Uh Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for giving us uh the scriptures to help us grow and be like you and mature and um, be sanctified. So we pray for your help as we go from here and uh, put into practice some of the things. I know we've been drinking from fire hoses the last few weeks. um, So I just pray you would help us apply the things that uh, that we need to apply into our Bible reading and that you would give us grace as we do that and help. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.